Business Parada, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Presented by Bridge Bank. Be safe. Venture wisely. I'm Dan Permac. On today's show, Uber eyes a big acquisition and California officials try to make nice with Tesla. But first, the rise and quick fall of Quibi. You have probably heard of Quibi, the short-form video streaming app that was the brainchild of former DreamWorks and Disney Studios boss Jeffrey Katzenberg and former Hewlett Packard and eBay CEO Meg Whitman. Or maybe you haven't which could be part of the problem. So Quibi was formed in 2018 with the promise of big celebrity stars and directors creating 10-minute episodes of everything from dramas to reality shows to news, likely for folks sitting on subways on their way to work or maybe in line for a sandwich during lunch break. And Quibi raised a ton of cash, $1.75 billion, mostly from Hollywood studios. The service launched on April 6th, and since then, well, it's been a dud. In just one week, it fell out of the top 50 most downloaded free iPhone apps, despite offering a 90-day free trial and a one-year free trial for T-Mobile subscribers. As of a few days ago, it had fallen out of the top 100, just behind a kid's game where you shoot at crash test dummies and make them fall off buildings. Now, Katzenberg, who I should note is an investor in Axios, told the New York Times recently that he blames all of the troubles on the pandemic. But Quibi's issues really do go deeper than that and raise serious questions as to the company's future viability, particularly as the pandemic will impair its ability to create new content and maybe discourage deep-pocketed investors from ponying up bridge financing. The bottom line, short form might be how people remember Quibi, and not just because of its show format. In 20 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Media reporter Sarah Fisher. But first, this... BridgeBank knows the ins and outs of business ups and downs and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank has been dedicated to providing financial solutions to sponsor-backed emerging technology and growth companies for nearly two decades through its national network of banking teams and offices. BridgeBank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be safe, venture wisely. We're joined now by Axios Media reporter Sarah Fisher. Take us back several months, pre-launch of Quibi, pre-COVID-19. What were the expectations, at least inside of Quibi, about how this product was going to do at launch? Yes, so we knew around CES that they were planning to launch in April. And at the time, we understood that they wanted to get around 7 million subscribers and they wanted to have, I think it was around 250, $350 million in subscriber revenue. Now, obviously they are nowhere near those projections. Quibi themselves is the first people to admit that. But what we know is that they were expecting this thing not to be a huge, huge hit in the beginning, but to have serious growth within that first year and it does not look like it's going to happen where are we on subs right now and on the revenue piece they offered a free trial to people was that not part of the original plan was that a coronavirus change this kind of free multi-month trial let me walk you through those numbers. So you have some third-party vendors like Sensor Tower that says, you know, that they've had about 2.9 million installs. Quibi actually told the New York Times they say it's higher. They say it's 3.5 million installs. And of those 3.5 million people, Jeffrey Katzenberg says that about 1.3 million are, and quote, active users. But what we don't know, Dan, is how many people are actually paying for this service? How many people are actually subscribing? Just because you install it does not mean that you are a subscriber the same way that Netflix or Disney Plus would count one because you're likely either using a free trial that you get through T-Mobile or you're on the 90-day free trial plan. 
Katzenberg told the New York Times that he basically blames everything on the pandemic, right? There was this idea that because you were doing short form video, this was almost going to be a commuter technology, right? You're on the subway, you're on a bus, you watch a 10 minute show, feel you've gotten a beginning, middle and end, whereas you don't necessarily have time to say watch a 30 minute or 60 minute show. From your perspective, is Katzenberg right? Is the COVID-19 pandemic largely to blame for their failure to catch on? I think he has no choice. The only way he can salvage this to investors, by the way, he's taken on $1.8 billion worth of investment, is to blame it on the pandemic. But is he right to blame it on the pandemic? Absolutely not, okay? We know that there are fundamental failures of this product beyond the pandemic, but I think for a lot of people who are looking at what he said and saying, this is ridiculous, I understand why he said it. You're not gonna come out and say, we have fundamental flaws in our product, that's why it's not working, even though we do kind of know that. I mean, he did admit that the daily essentials, which is about a third of the programming that's offered on Quibi, aren't that essential. People aren't even consuming them. That's not a Quibi pandemic problem. That's a Quibi problem. Also know that there have been, quite frankly, some problems with marketing. They ran this expensive and flashy Super Bowl ad. Nobody knew what the ad was even for. So I think that he's wrong to blame it on the pandemic. Although, obviously, I understand why he's doing it. I mean, you borrow so much money, your product's a complete failure. Of course, you're going to blame it on the pandemic. You and I, I think, had a conversation, not on this show, but just maybe the two of us, when Quibi was getting formed, maybe even last year, and we discussed how it seems that for most streaming services, they need to end up getting a basically a hit show, a water cooler show, even though I know we don't have water coolers anymore. But, you know, a water cooler show, you think of House of Cards for Netflix, you think of Handmaid's Tale for Hulu. Is that a piece of this, that Quibi has not created one of those programs that you and I and all of our friends and family are talking about and making us download the app? Yes, and it's interesting, they launched with a lot of celebrities to be able to tap into that sort of zeitgeist. Chrissy Teigen has Chrissy's Court, Jennifer Lopez has a philanthropy show, Chance the Rapper is bringing back Punked from MTV, Idris Elba is involved. They got celebrities on board and they got big Hollywood producers on board so that they could create that zeitgeist. But to your point, no one is talking about any of those shows. I think the one maybe that has gotten some cultural phenomenon would be Chrissy's Court with Chrissy Teigen. But other than that, they don't have anything. And so I think the problem there is not so much a technology issue, but to your point, Quibi definitely has a programming problem. It's an interesting thing, too, because, you know, if you think of those shows that I mentioned or, you know, you think about, say, Game of Thrones for HBO or even Sopranos for HBO going way back, none of those had very big name celebrities, at least not at the time when those shows launched. It was the storytelling that was the thing that got people on those. Yeah, and it's tough to do good storytelling in 10 minutes. I think talk to people about this with Snapchat. Snapchat has a similar problem. They have this Discover channel and there's a few key hits, but it's really hard to develop strong story arcs when you only have two to five to 10 minutes to do so. And so I think what Quibi's gonna have to start to think about is if the technology, the turn style technology where you can flip your phone from portrait to horizontal doesn't save their storytelling, what will be it? And in an era where production is halted, they're gonna have to really really think about a new strategy moving forward. And of course, that technology, there's a lawsuit right now that Elliott Management, who's a huge hedge fund, is financing that basically argues they stole that technology, which Quibi disputes. All right, Sarah, so going forward here, outside of come up with a better show, what can Quibi do and does it have the money to do it? It raised $1.75 before, but it spent a lot of that on production and marketing. 
Well, there's a couple things. First and foremost, they have a really shallow library. Only 50 shows right now. They said they wanted to have 175 by the time they launched. What Quibi has said is, look, we're willing to abandon this idea of turnstile temporarily. They've said that they'll put some of their shows on television. What I would do if I were them is think about quality programming that they can license or that they can buy in the short term so that their library is a little bit fuller and they might not be able to apply the turnstile technology to it. But if consumers are saying to them, we don't care about that, we just wanna watch content, then throw the turnstile out the window, throw mobile out the window and start to become a regular distributor the same way the other streaming companies are. That's one option moving forward. The other option moving forward, quite frankly, is to hit sort of a pause button. They said they're gonna reduce marketing spend dramatically. They had originally intended to spend $450 million this year on marketing of 175 shows by year's end. Well, if you're not gonna have 175 shows, why the heck are you gonna spend $450 million marketing them? So the other thing that they can really do here, Dan, is just get leaner. And that's something that Jeffrey Katzenberg, by the way, admitted that they were gonna start to think about doing in that New York Times interview. This issue of launching into the pandemic, again, they launched after the lockdown orders and there was a lot of people who looked and said, well, why are you doing that given the way you have pitched yourself? From your perspective, was that hubris or was that because the way the financing was, they had no choice? I think it was hubris. I remember being on a press call on April 1st about launching the following week on April 6th. And on that press call, I'm sitting in a car waiting to get a takeout burger in Southern Virginia. And I'm thinking to myself, how the heck are they going to seriously be able to create programming? Are they going to be able to get people to pay for something when budgets are so tight? You know, if I'm thinking that as a person on April 1st, I cannot imagine why they wouldn't say, hey, you know what, let's delay the launch, maybe even just a few months or so until we can see how this pandemic is going to ride out. How was the burger? Delicious. Sarah Fisher, who writes the Axios Media Trends newsletter, which you can get at signup.axios.com. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Dan. My final two, right after this. Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors, those committed to making the world a better place. Bridgebank has been dedicated to providing financial solutions to sponsor-backed emerging technology and growth companies for nearly two decades through its national network of banking teams and offices. Bridgebank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank, be safe, venture wisely. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Uber, which is in talks to acquire Grubhub in a deal that could be worth nearly $6 billion. Why it matters is that this deal would point out the crazy contradictions of restaurant delivery. On the one hand, it has never been more popular given the pandemic lockdowns. But at the same time, losses continue to pile up for all four of the major players, Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, and Postmates. It's that old make it up with volume joke come to life. Those losses, though, are the reason that Uber is desperate to take out one of its rivals in what would be the industry's first major consolidation since Seamless and Grubhub merged in 2013. But if successful, expect a big antitrust battle, particularly given that Uber has not made too many friends in Washington, D.C. over the last few years. And finally, Tesla. Our Monday show was about how Tesla Motors had sued California's Alameda County over local officials' refusal to let Tesla reopen its Fremont manufacturing facility. After we aired, Elon Musk apparently decided the legal process was too slow and cumbersome, tweeting that he was opening the factory immediately and that he'd be on the assembly line if anyone wanted to come arrest him. 
They didn't, and the factory opened. Late last night, Alameda County also took to Twitter, saying that it had met with Tesla reps and will permit a reopening if certain safety conditions are met. But again, the factory is already open. So this is really about local officials saving face as they tacitly acknowledge that the local billionaire is more powerful than they are. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Crouton Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.